Now, as a beginning place, I'd like to have you turn to the 18th chapter of Luke, Luke 18, to the story of the Pharisee and the publican. This, I believe, is a good place to begin. This is perhaps the most foundational passage on this uh, topic in the New Testament. I have a young friend uh, back in California who was talking to me one day about his little daughter as he watched her uh, play in the living room. He said, you know, I would, I would rather she grow up to be a prostitute than a self-righteous prig. Of course, he said, I would rather that she became, became neither. But if, if those were the options, I would much rather have her a prostitute and know it than a self-righteous prude. And my friend was, uh, was given to outlandish statements, but that one really jolted me. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that uh, he was on to something. As a matter of fact, Jesus said almost the same thing. He said to a group of self-made uh, religious men once that harlots would get into the kingdom of heaven before they. Now, our Lord was given to statements like that. He loved to jolt people's mind, to stab their, their mind awake so that they rethought traditional ideas. Uh, that's why, as the disciples put, of it, uh, put it, some of his sayings were hard. Not hard to understand, but perplexing, puzzling. You had to back off and, and think them through again. Now, this parable is, uh, is like that. It's a hard saying because it teaches us that it's better to be a sinner and to know it because it may, in the end, lead us to the highest good. Now, let's look at the story. Uh, it's found in Luke 18, beginning with uh, verse 9. We should note that uh, this particular paragraph from 9 through 14 is grammatically related to the paragraph that precedes it. It's not obvious in all of our translations, but uh, it's so. Because our Lord is talking about prayer, and uh, you'll find prayer in both of these parables. In the parable that precedes from uh, verses 1 through 8, you have the story of the so-called importunate widow who kept coming back to the unjust and uncaring judge, making her request. And finally, he gave in. The point that the Lord makes is not that God is like that uncaring, unfeeling judge, but rather, he is a father. And if an uncaring judge will eventually give someone what they ask, how much, with how much more alacrity will a loving father respond, you say? And therefore, uh, Jesus says, we ought to persist in prayer. Men and women ought to pray and not to give up. In other words, authentic prayer and authentic faith constitutes patience. As Paul puts it uh, in another place, it is by faith and patience that we inherit the promises. That's why he concludes the parable with the comment, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith like this on the earth? People who keep coming back to God and asking for his goodness. Now, the next parable, the parable of the publican and, and sinner, follows grammatically. It's also about a parable, uh, excuse me, a parable about the publican and sinner. It's also about prayer. And here, the emphasis is not so much on persistence in prayer, but the spirit with which we should pray. We're told that uh, this parable was addressed to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. 
So at the very outset, we're told this is a parable about pride and prejudice. And it's my conviction that this parable was addressed not to the Pharisees, but to disciples. Jesus' disciples, Christians, we would call them today, or so-called Christians, nominal Christians, who thought well of themselves because they were with Jesus. Now, if you look at the context clearly, you'll see that uh, Luke generally, uh, when he records a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees, tells us that, that it's the Pharisees that he's addressing the parable to. In this case, it's those who thought well of themselves and looked down on everyone else. I believe they were followers of Jesus who thought because they were on the inside were better positioned than anyone else. They could look down on others. And he's dealing with the condition of their heart, the state of their heart, the spirit that controlled them. And so he tells this story about a Pharisee, an honest-to-goodness good man and a publican who was an irreligious man, the sort of man that would never darken the door of of a church. Now let's look at the parable. Two men, I'm reading verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now in those days uh, there uh, there were a number of religious parties in Judaism, but essentially there were three, three major groups. There were the Sadducees, who were the, uh, uh, the religious liberals of the day. They did not take the scriptures seriously. They did not believe in certain supernatural phenomena, such as the resurrection. They were the radical left. On the radical right were a bunch of people called the Essenes, who built what amounts to a Bible city down by, uh, uh, down by the Dead Sea. They wanted to get away from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. They thought the whole thing was corrupt. And uh, so they they went uh, down to the Dead Sea, to the Judean wilderness, and they built a commune there, and and they separated themselves from the rest of uh, rest of Israel. Most of the people at that day just thought of them as quaint and a little bit kookish. They really didn't take them seriously. But in the middle, the moderates were the Pharisees. Now, we're accustomed to thinking of the Pharisees as the bad guys in the gospel stories because they're the ones who always oppose Jesus. But we need to understand who these people were. Their name comes from an Aramaic term that means to be separated. And by that, they meant they were separated from the world, from the irreligious, unbelieving uh, portion of Israel. Now, We often think that most people in Israel were very religious, but that's not so. There was a hard core of of faith, and uh, most of it was found uh, within the Pharisees, and the rest of the people were essentially irreligious. They didn't care about going to the synagogue. Well, they didn't have synagogues then. Uh, They didn't care about going to the temple. They, uh, uh, They went hunting and fishing on the Sabbath, or they stayed home. They just were not interested in, in religious things. But the Pharisees were. The Pharisees took the scriptures very seriously. They were the conservators of the text. Their scribes were the, were the scholars of that day and, and the Bible teachers. They believed the Bible. They accepted its, uh, its authority right down to the, to the words. And they, and they practiced their religion. They were very good people. Now, we must keep that in mind as we think about them. 
Because if you and I had lived in Jesus' day, we would probably have been Pharisees. It pains me to say it, but it's probably true because they represented the conservative uh, wing of Judaism, the evangelical wing, wing of, of Israel at that time. We would have been Pharisees, most likely. And we're told that this Pharisee came to the temple to pray. The Pharisees had three religious duties that they observed faithfully. They prayed 18 times a day wherever they were. A call to prayer would come. They would stop what they were doing. If they were riding on their donkey, they would get off and park their donkey. And and they would stand in the middle of the street and they would pray. They also gave tithes, gave alms to the temple and, and to the poor. And they fasted twice a week. Uh, Israel was commanded to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's what the law commanded. But the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Now we're told that this man went into the temple to to pray. And uh, he stood up. And he prayed to himself. He drew near to to the holy place, the place where God dwelt in symbol. And he stood up, which was the uh, common Jewish posture for prayer. Men stood and lifted their hands when they, they prayed instead of kneeling or, or assuming some other posture. They stood and they prayed. So this man assumed the right posture. He was a prayer. He knew how to pray. He knew the right words. He knew how to stand. And uh, uh, he, he, began to, uh, he began to pray. We're told that he prayed to himself. If you have a new international... It, it translates the New International Version. It translates he prayed about himself. But literally, it simply says he prayed to himself. Now, some have thought that uh, he prayed to himself in the sense that, uh, that no one was listening. There was no one on the other end of the line. His prayers were just going to the ceiling and no further. But I don't think that's the point that Jesus is, is making. He's simply saying that he prayed inaudibly. He prayed silently. In other words, you would not know what this man was thinking uh, or what he believed unless the Lord had revealed his heart. God saw his heart. But if you had seen him pray, you would have thought of him as as a very pious man, a religious man who's fulfilling his religious duty. He came into the temple at the prescribed time for prayer. He stood uh, close to the holy place, as close as he could get. He lifted up his hands and he began to pray. And this is what he prayed in his heart. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Now, you have to give the man credit. He gave thanks to God that he was a man of character. And, and he was. He goes on to tell us that he, he's not a robber. He's not a thief. He doesn't rip people off. He's not unjust. The word means unfair. In other words, uh, he was an honest businessman. He dealt fairly with people, and he says, I'm not an adulterer. He's not a womanizer. doesn't chase the wrong kind of women. He doesn't chase women. He's faithful to his wife, you see. So he was a, he was a good man, we would say back in Texas. He's a good old boy, an honest, uh, God-fearing uh, uh, person. Uh, he's a very religious person. I fast twice a week, he says. Every Monday and every Thursday, according to the Pharisaic uh, rule, he fasted. 
And he gave a tenth of all his income. Now, Jews were required to give only a tenth of certain commodities that were spelled out in the law. But this man tithed everything, like the Pharisees of whom Jesus spoke. You tithe dill and mint and cumin, even the garden herbs. They tithe a tenth of everything, scrupulous in their observance of, of their traditions. So this is a very religious man. I thank you, he says, that I'm not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all my income. And that sounds to us very smug and very self-righteous, but if you stop and think about it for a moment, this is the kind of person that you would love to have in your community or in your service club. Or in your church. He was a man of integrity and honor and honesty. And we need to understand that. He was a good man. Now on the other hand, we have the tax collector or the publican as he's normally called. Actually, publican is an incorrect term. The publicans were the Romans, the wealthy Romans, who bought the right to tax certain districts of the Roman Empire. And they sold those rights to Jews. And the word that's translated tax collector here is the Jewish uh, tax collector who worked for the wealthy Roman publican. And they were despised because they had sold out to, the, uh, to a foreign power. They collected taxes for Caesar, which meant that they had sold out to the, uh, to the power that dominated Israel. They were quislings. They were collaborators. Furthermore, they were thieves. They were crooks. Because they, uh, they overtaxed uh, the people that, uh, they were, uh, that they were responsible for and they pocketed the surplus and only turned into the public and what, uh, what Rome actually exacted in terms of taxes. So they were crooks and thieves. And very often they were involved in, in all sorts of, of illicit and illegal and immoral uh, actions. They had been cut off from the temple. They were not permitted to worship with the rest of the Jews, though they were Jews. They were treated like Gentiles and, uh, and outsiders. We would say today, in our idiom, they were scumbags. Uh, they, uh, it's hard to think of a modern equivalent. We, we think of someone who is a collaborator with a foreign power, but I think the emotional equivalent would be someone who sells uh, dope to kids or... Uh, uh, or someone who, who sexually molests children, someone like that, who is utterly despised. That's the tax collector. And this, uh, this dear man, we're told, stood at a distance. He, he, did not, he could not find it in his heart to approach the holy place. Uh, he, he didn't even look up to heaven. He, he didn't have the heart to look God in the eye. He hung his, he hung his head and... And he kept beating his chest. That's the verb tense indicates that. He kept beating his chest. And he prayed out, oh, oh Lord, have mercy upon me as a, a sinner. He's one of these fellows that, that didn't even know how to pray. You're not supposed to pray like that in church. You don't beat your breast. And, and you don't pray out loud. You, you have to have dignity and, and decorum uh, in the temple. And uh, he didn't know where to stand. Or how to stand. But he prayed the prayingest prayer he had ever prayed in his life. I, uh, this last week, came across a, a poem by Samuel Walter 
uh, Foss on prayer. That really tickled me. I thought I'd pass it on to you. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Shaw. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed uh, and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year, I fell in Hitchkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever prayed, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. <laughs> now, that's the kind of prayer that, that God hears. And that's the kind of prayer that, that characterized this man. He didn't know all the right words. He just cried out to God. It reminds me of the story that I told you before that a friend of mine told about a, a young woman coming down to the front of the church, uh, obviously uh, ill-dressed for church. They were having a communion service, and as they passed the, the elements, she didn't know what to do with the... Uh, with the with the cup, and so as they drank the cup, she held it up as a toast to God. That's all she knew how to do. She'd never been in a church service before, but she came hungering for God. Now that's that's the way this man was. He didn't have all the words right. He he, he didn't know how to pray. Didn't know how to stand, but he prayed the prayer in his pray in his prayer that that he ever prayed, and God heard him. God listened. He cries out for mercy. Have mercy upon me. It's the word for propitiation or expiation in the New Testament. What he's asking for is, is forgiveness, atonement. He wants to be free from his sin. And he wants God to be his friend. He wants to be loved by God. That, that was the hunger of his heart. And we're told that God heard him. <laughs> Even though the words weren't right. God heard him. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And we have that on, on Jesus' authority. He went home justified. Now, that's Paul's great word, justification. He was declared righteous. His sins were forgiven. He was given a righteous standing before God. God said, this man is A-OK as far as I'm concerned. He went home justified rather than the other. For, as Jesus puts it, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that, that final phrase, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, is a, is a maxim, it's an aphorism, it's a truism that shows up three different places in Jesus' teaching, here in Luke 14, in Matthew 23, and in Luke 18. And we want to look at all of those passages in the next few weeks. It's the bottom line to three discourses of Jesus. 
used in different ways, but apparently that was a very, very important principle to Jesus. It said it all. If, you, if you're proud, he says, you'll be put down. If you're humbled, you'll be exalted. Now, the, the problem, of course, with the Pharisee is that he was a proud man. When we read uh, through the story, the difference seems to be the difference between black and white. The Pharisee is a good man. Uh, uh, the Pharisee is the bad man in the story. And, and uh, the uh, publican or the tax collector is the man who, who, uh, who looks good in the story. And obviously that is the point. But the difference is not quite as black and white as we would like to make it out to be. Because if you looked at the Pharisee's life, he was a very good man. And you look at the tax collector's life, and he was a very evil man on the surface. And we ask, what, what sort of strange God is this that justifies notorious sinners and, uh, uh, and rejects good men? Well, he saw what you might not have seen on the surface. He saw the heart of the man. He saw his pride. That's the basis of our separation from God and from others. It's pride that causes contention with people. Proverbs puts it that way. And it's pride that separates us from God. What God is looking for, as Isaiah put it, is someone who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And again, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, impoverished, those that don't have it made and can't make it, those who know of their, of their inadequacy, because these are the ones, he said, that get it all. In the end, they get the kingdom of God. And so the problem is pride. It's not performance. Performance initially has little to do with anything. It's the attitude of the heart. It's our pride that separates us from God. And that's what has to be dealt with. Now, uh, as, as C.S. Lewis puts it, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the root of every other vice. Whereas, on the contrary, humility is the root of every other virtue. Now, we know that. I don't have to tell you that. We all know that pride is a problem. And we dislike pride very much. We particularly dislike it in others. We all agree that, our, that pride ought to be put down. The question is, whose? And uh, as Jesus puts it so clearly in this, in this parable, the root problem in all of us is pride. It's not the pride in my brother. It's the pride in me, you see. That's what causes the problem. Now, the... The question is, how do we deal with our pride? And that's what we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. One of the ways, as I mentioned before, is that, that God himself delivers us over to death. He, he lets us get into those situations that humiliate us. And our pride is humble. Another way is, uh, uh, is, is to just look at Jesus and learn from him, as he himself put it. I am meek and humble in, in heart. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
And you'll learn humility. You'll, you'll understand uh, how pride manifests itself because pride is such a subtle thing. It manifests itself in ways that we're not even aware of. But by looking at Jesus, we can learn to deal with, with our pride. But uh, there's another way, and it's the way that's pointed out here in, in this passage. If you read it carefully, you'll discover that the basis of the Pharisee's pride was his tendency to compare himself with others. Uh, he said, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, an evil man. I'm not a womanizer. I'm not a thief. I'm not unfair in my business practices. Like that fellow over there. And that man was all of those things, you see. And, and that's another problem and has to be dealt with. But the problem in the Pharisee's heart is that he was comparing himself with others. And unfortunately, that's what we do. We all want to feel good about ourselves. We want to know if we're okay. We want to know if, uh, if, if we're all right. And what we do uh, is find a standard to compare ourselves with. And that standard is usually somebody else. We look at them and we think, well, I'm not as bad off as they are. That's what's behind racism, I'm convinced. How, how can you explain the terrible things that we do and say about members of other races, except on this basis? I'm whiter than they. I'm therefore better than they. This explains the, the so-called humor in uncomplimentary ethnic uh, jokes. Uh, obviously, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't form a firing squad in a circle, so I am smarter than they. I would not uh, put only a reverse gear in my tank. Therefore, I'm more courageous than they. This is why we love to gossip about people. If we can find some juicy, tasteful morsel to sink our teeth into, we love it because it makes us feel better about ourselves. This is why we like to see our our heroes fall. Have you ever noticed uh, uh, how quickly the media will pick up stories of the failure of people that are that are prominent uh, athletes or or uh, movie stars, actresses, actors, politicians? We relish that because when the mighty are fallen, it, it simply establishes in our own eyes that we are we are mightier than than they, and we constantly. Think in terms of the comparative degree. We don't merely want to be pretty and witty and good. We want to be prettier than everyone else. Wittier than they. Better than they are. And, and finally, we want the superlative degree. We want to be the prettiest. We want to be the best. Uh, we play mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of us all? And... Uh, this is, this is basically the problem. We utilize every means that we can to compare ourselves with others so we'll feel better about ourselves. That was the problem with the Pharisee. Had his eyes on other people. The difference, and basically the, and, and the, and the basic difference between the two is that the, the, the tax collector put his eyes on God. And when he set his eyes on God, he knew what he was. 
Now, it is easier, it's somewhat easier to, to realize how, how poor you are in spirit if you're a notorious sinner. This man, when he prays, actually describes himself not as a sinner. He doesn't say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He uses the definite article, have mercy upon me, the sinner, that notorious sinner, the town sinner, the person that everyone in, in my village knows is disreputable. It's a little easier for people like that to recognize that, that they're sinful, bankrupt before God. But uh, nevertheless, all of us have to see it. it it's, it's harder for those of us who, have not, uh, who, who haven't uh, sinned to such an extent that we've humiliated ourselves in front of the entire community. Nevertheless, when you get your eyes on God, then you begin to see what you really are. And you can't justify yourself. You can't defend yourself. And you can only do what this poor man did. You cry out uh, for mercy. In the Old Testament, whenever any of the, the biblical men and women saw God, they were humbled by it. Isaiah and Jeremiah went away from their uh, confrontations with God, humbled. They said of themselves, we're unclean. We're terrible people, disreputable people. It's true of the woman at the well who met Jesus. True of the woman who washed his, his feet in Simon's house. It was true of Peter himself when he fell to his knees and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm an unclean man. Whenever you see God in all of his glory, then you see yourself for what you are and you have to hang your head. That's what humbles us. But whenever people saw God and realized who they were and what they were and received his forgiveness, they were given back their dignity and their worth and they went away Willing to serve. You know, it doesn't work well to try to justify yourself. All of us want to see, uh, want to, want to be, feel worthy. Feel that we're okay. That everything's all right with us. And we use uh, these other uh, comparative ways of, to make ourselves feel better. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We just go away with even greater distress of heart. But when we see ourselves for what we are, desperately needy, sinful people, and we recognize it, and we cry out for mercy, then we're forgiven. And we know it. Our guilt is lifted. And we're given dignity and a feeling of worth. And we walk out wanting to serve. That's what's always happened. When people came to terms with who they were on the basis of, of, of who God is. That's why I said in the beginning that sometimes the highest good of all comes from realizing how sinful we are and dealing with it. That's why my heart cries out for, for so-called uh, homosexual Christians today. I, I've caught so much flack over the last uh, couple of weeks over my columns, uh, even from some of my colleagues who... Uh, who say I'm using a carrot-and-stick approach, that I, I talk about love and compassion, and then I haul out the scriptures and, and I whack them with a, with a scripture. But, you see, that's the ultimate kindness of all. Because there is no sense of worth, there is no dignity without calling what God calls sin, sin, and taking it before God and asking for forgiveness. And then there is 
restoration. And our sense of, of fulfillment in worth comes back. You know, it's very clear to me from the Old Testament that gay is not good. That homosexual uh, sexual practices are sinful. Leviticus says it twice. A man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. How clear can it be? And then when you turn to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that is, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor uh, the NIV translates homosexual offenders, but in Greek it's the word soft. These were the uh, passive homosexual partners of the ancient world. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And they say, well... But these terms, translated homosexual and soft here, are words for perverted homosexual activity. Homosexuality without, without love. But uh, they, they beg the question. They're grasping at straws. Because there are no other words in the Greek world. The Greeks simply used these terms and applied them to homosexual practices without any attempts to distinguish between good homosexuality and evil homosexuality. It was just homosexuality then. And when Paul picks up these terms, he uses the very words that they use to refer to all types of homosexual practices. Now, I say that because all of us must face the fact that we're sinful and we have to deal with it. And those of us who are inclined to be disdainful of, homosexual, uh, of homosexuals need to judge that tendency as well because God is not disdainful of them. He loves them. That's why I'm saying if, if, if we want to deal with our pride, we've got to look at God. We've got to see Him and see who He is and listen to His Word. And then we see what we are. And then God gives us the grace to begin to change, to be more like Him. You know, if a year later this uh, uh, text man showed up at the temple and uh, he he prayed, uh, thank you, God, that you have forgiven me, though I continue to be a swindler and I continue to run around with the wrong kind of women and, and I continue to, uh, to treat my countrymen in an unfair and unjust way. I would, I would have to question his justification because justification is more than a, a legal proclamation. It, it involves a change of heart. It doesn't mean that uh, one has to be perfect, but there needs to be some... Uh, uh, it needs to be a dealing with sin, a willingness to put it away, to judge it, and, and put it away and begin to change. What Paul means when he says that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God is not that those who may occasionally slip into these sins won't seek God, but he's talking about those who justify their sin, who are unwilling to deal with it, to, to have done with it, to put it away, and begin to walk in newness of life. And so I would, would say to you, as I say to myself in, in closing, if, if we want to deal with our pride, we've got to see God. The only way to see God now is through His Word. That's the only way. We don't see Him in all of His glory as Isaiah saw Him or Jeremiah, a glorious representation of God. But we see Him in the Word. And as Paul puts it, in his letter to the Corinthian church, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a glass 
the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of likeness to another. As we put away our sham and our hypocrisy, all of this nonsense with which we try to hide our faces and, and keep from looking, face, uh, looking into God's face, as we, as we see Him through the Word, by the Spirit of God, we will begin to change. And He will make us more and more like Him. The question is, are we willing to do it? We, we want to protect our pride. We want to guard our own turf, but we can't. Paul says it's with open face, unveiled face. We see God through the Word, and it changes us. Let's pray. Father, all of us are, uh, are humbled by a passage like this because we, could, we all can identify, not so much with the, with the publican, with the tax collector, but with the Pharisee. We see how pharisaical our hearts are. And we do look down on others who are unlike us, unlike us in, in color or in sex or uh, in education or in culture or unlike us morally. They, they don't have the same business standards and ethics that we have. And so we tend to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with others. Lord, help us to realize how, how, how desperate our condition is we need to see that the crisis is total. We cannot justify ourselves. And when we see you, we see how far short we fall from the glory of God. Lord, give us open hearts, unveiled hearts. Help us to expose ourselves to you. You see us anyway. What do we have to hide? And uh, we ask that as we see you through the word, you will begin to deal with our pride. And we will, uh, we will thus be able to appropriate all the grace, all the goodness, all the forgiveness that comes to us through your love. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.